Welcome to the Women in Sport and Exercise Academic Network podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jackie Forsyth, and also co-founder of the network. The purpose of the Women in Sport and Exercise Academic Network is to grow, strengthen, and promote research on women in sport and exercise with the ultimate goal of optimizing women's athletic success and their participation. With these podcasts, we wish to bring you information from leading academics who are researching about women in sport and exercise and provide you with advice and support for the exercising female. Please remember our disclaimer that the opinions, content and recommendations contained within our podcast are for general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, treatment or diagnosis. Donna Duffy is an Associate Professor in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Donna's lifelong personal and professional commitment to advancing women's health helped her to define her current research agenda, which is focused on girls' and women's experiences with sport-related head injuries. Donna is the co-director of the Female Brain Project at her university and also director of the programme for the advancement of girls and women in sport and physical activity. As part of the Female Brain Project, Donna leads an active, collaborative team who focus on better understanding the role of sex hormones in moderating head injuries among female athletes. In this podcast, I talk with Donna about the issue of head injuries being unreported in women's sport. Her work as part of the Female Brain Project and future research needs in the area of concussion among female athletes. So I've got Donna Duffy here with me doing the podcast today. Welcome Donna. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. I really appreciate it. Oh thank you so much. Can you first tell me a little bit more about the prevalence and incidence of concussion in female sport? Sure, yeah. Um, So I exclusively study female athletes. I don't do any type of comparison studies between men and women. Typically, if I have to pull any kind of male data for comparative purposes, I go right to the literature and I just look for comparative norms. So... I only study female athletes and there are reasons why and sort of my philosophy behind that, which I can talk a little bit about, but I firmly believe both from a scientific standpoint, but also from a scholarly standpoint and just within my own philosophy of work that I do that females need exclusive studies Um, when it comes to head injuries and what are called concussions in specifically sport-related concussions. So many years ago when the different return to guidelines were developed, and so there's a return to play guideline, there's return to learn, return to school, return to work, for example, all of those guidelines were developed based on male normative values And when I learned that many years ago, it immediately struck me as odd. 
because we do know that physiologically men and women are different and that in some cases we perform differently and that our bodies respond to things differently based on hormonal profiles, for example, or genetic factors based on environment. So women need their own return to guidelines. They need their own um, set of standard norms. And so when I really got involved in this work, you know, that was sort of one of my goals. And it still is to have a big enough normative data set um, that represents all demographics of women um, so that we can start to develop female exclusive guidelines around head injuries in terms of those return to documents that I'm in, in those policies, I guess is the best way to say it that I just talked about a few minutes ago. In terms of the prevalence of concussions, sport related concussions with female athletes, I think that that's a hard question. And one of the reasons is because seven years ago, I would have said, look at this article or look at this report. This is what this is going to tell you about the prevalence with sport-related concussions and head injuries with female athletes. But the more I get into this work, there are several things that I'm, I have learned and continue to learn about sport-related head injuries and this idea of what in the U.S. we call injury surveillance. And that is a way to quantify the number of concussions that female athletes experience. I became concerned with those figures that were being reported for several reasons. First, the number of unreported concussions within the female athlete injury, head injury space is staggering. And I see this happening for a couple of different reasons. The first reason is that in the United States, for example, where I'm located, you have thousands of women who are participating in sport beyond their college years. And they're not only participating in sports like a club field hockey team or playing lacrosse on Saturdays with their friends, they're participating in organized leagues like women's tackle football. So in the United States, there are a couple of different women's tackle football leagues that have approximately 28 teams. By our count, when we went online and just counted the number of women that were listed on the rosters for each team in these leagues, there are more women playing women's tackle football at a semi-pro level than there are NFL players in the, in the United States. And so one of the things that I learned by working with the two North Carolina teams, the Carolina Phoenix and the Carolina Queens, is that their teams are funded a little bit with some sponsorships that they might be able to, to get, but primarily they're using a pay-to-play model which means that the athletes themselves will pay anywhere between two and $5,000 to play a season with them. So they're considered semi-pro, but they're not being paid. In fact, they're paying to play. And this is the case with roller derby. This is the case with lacrosse. This is the case with rugby. Um, you see a little bit of it happening still in women's hockey, which is you know rising to a professional level in the U.S., and one of the things that became really clear to me 
when I was starting to do my research with the two North Carolina women's tackle football teams is that they can't afford athletic trainers. So these women are participating in this collision sport and they don't have access to athletic trainers in practices and in games they have access to probably one athletic trainer. So if there's an athletic trainer on the sideline who's taping someone's ankle who may have just rolled it when they were out on the field and another player comes off the field and really sort of feels dizzy, like she just doesn't feel right, that last hit that she just took on the offensive line just really, you know, to use some of their words, put knocked them for a loop or just they got their bell rung. There's no athletic trainer there to tend to them. And so because female football players tend to play both sides of the ball, their coach is looking for them to go right back out onto the field for the next play. And so we're seeing a number of underreported head injuries with female athletes because there truly is a lack of medical care available for them. And when you talk to most athletes about that in these organized leagues, it's a funding issue for them. It's just, it's it's problematic. And so I was working with one of our research participants about a month ago who during one of the roller derby bouts took a really hard hit and she called and said, you know, can, can I come in and do my neurocognitive and neuromotor testing again? Because I took a really hard hit. I don't feel good. I have sort of what the classic symptoms of a concussion are. And so we said, yes, you can come in, keeping in mind that we're a research facility, not a medical facility. We cannot confirm or diagnose anything for you. All we can do is give you your data, and then you have to make decisions from there. And so what we learned was that when compared to her baseline on the, some of the tests that she was performing in the fourth percentile, so she, and she couldn't go to the doctor because she doesn't have health insurance. And so you have a number of women who are participating in these sports that they love, and that's a part of their identity. But when we think about how exactly to quantify the number of head injuries that female athletes experience, I think it's really difficult. Now, there is some literature out there that says, you know, this percentage of girls will experience a concussion within their high school years if they're playing this sport or this sport. And I can understand where some of that is coming from, but I, I really strongly believe that the injury surveillance numbers around quantifying the number of head injuries that female athletes experience, it's just not, it's not solid data. It's either going underreported or unreported for a, a lot of different reasons, including the ones that I just explained to you. And have you then collected data or carried out any research on the incidence of concussion among females who take part in, like you say, paid to play type sports or amateur sport? Yeah, so we've tried. But we face some of the same things that have been reported in the early literature on concussions, and that is female athletes that the female athletes that we have worked with won't report concussion to us. 
because it mean it they think it could potentially mean that they're not going to get their playing time or they're not going to be able to play the following weekend, which is not true from an IRB and from a research ethics standpoint. We would never report that to a coach or to an athletic trainer or whomever. That's not what we would do. But one of the things that I do strongly believe is that with concussion, there is sort of this idea of a culture of silence and that athletes don't want to report it because they just want to play their sport. And so our attempts to quantify the number of head injuries, concussive experiences that female athletes have within a, the, a single season has not been that successful. I mean, we're getting one or two. And so when you really think about that number, right, and you think about, okay, so over the course of a season, we were looking at two different football teams in North Carolina. Let's say between both teams, there were 58 athletes total. You're talking about women who are using their bodies and their heads to protect a ball or move a ball. And we're getting one or two concussions over the course of six months. There's no way, right? It's got to be more than that. Common sense would tell us that it's got to be more than that. So there are some sort of underlying cultural and structural reasons why we can't really get a solid number on the number of head injuries that female athletes are experiencing. I will say one thing um, that I I just want to mention this too. In the injury surveillance data, there's some research that's published that says female athletes experience more head injuries than their male counterparts in sports where the rules are similar or something like that. Um, And what they mean is that if you have a male basketball player and a female basketball player, the female basketball player is more likely to experience a concussion. I don't believe that literature. I think that there are other ways that that can be explained. I think that there are other reasons why people might come to those conclusions. So I personally don't have a lot of confidence in the reporting data. And especially, I have a lot of questions about the data that is reported that basically suggests that female athletes experience more concussions in similar sports, in sports where there are similar rules to their male counterparts. Uh, My experience in this space tells me that that's just not the case. Certainly not because women have weaker neck muscles. So one of the prevailing thoughts around this, especially in the early concussion literature, when females were starting to be included in this, was that females were going to experience more head injuries because they have weaker neck muscles. And that I don't buy that. I just think that that's not a way to explain that. Is it possible that a female athlete might have weaker neck muscles than, you know, a male counterpart? Sure. But isn't it also possible that a male athlete could have weaker neck muscles than a female counterpart? And so explaining that that data in a way that makes female athletes or conveys this idea that female athletes are weaker or less than, that conversation has got to change in the way that we talk about these things because that is not the case, right? And so we really have to be really People, researchers, scholars have to be careful with the way that they have these conversations because we cannot continue to contribute to literature that suggests that female athletes are 
weaker or less than. So despite this lack of research and the underreporting or the inappropriate reporting of data and research, have you been able to come up with anything concrete or maybe some advice or guidelines regarding concussion or return to play from concussion for a female athlete? Yeah, so the short answer is no. We don't have enough data yet, right? So that is one of the things that my research team continues to work towards through the various concussion projects that we have ongoing and that we either have closed data collection on or continue to collect data on. The answer is no, we don't have enough data to be able to say, based on this, this is what this is how female athletes should return to play. This is what should be considered. We just don't have that data yet to be able to say that. I can tell you that in some of our research that just got published, when we compared um, from a balance standpoint, the information, the data that we had collected over the course of two years with our female football players, when we compared that balance data to the male normative data, it was different. So where these women were starting with their balance and they're basically, we use the same test that was used to collect the male normative data. We use that same test for two years. Our average score and our baseline scores were already different from the male data. But like I said, that was based on an N of, I think, 32 um, or 31. Um, I'd have to go back to look and see how much how many people we included in that publication, but we just are not there with the data yet. But in my professional opinion, women need their own guidelines, but we just have to be able to know, not to prove it, so to speak, but to have enough data to say, this is what women need for their own return to play, return to learn, return to work guidelines. And when you say difference in balance, what was the difference? Um, Women scored actually better. And so there are uh, neuromotor folks and biomechanists on our team. And so understanding how and why women scored better than the male in their baseline test compared to the male normative data that is published and that we sometimes will compare against, they're still trying to figure out why. Is it because possibly from an anatomical standpoint, women have differences in their center of gravity it could be a number of different things. And I think that that's what some of our biomechanists and our motor people are trying to figure out right now. Um, in terms of the female brain project, what is the overall message or what is the overall aim of that project? Yeah, so that that's a great question. We have um, multiple projects happening within that project umbrella. So um, for example, we just finished data collection on the development of an observation document that could be used in youth sports settings with female soccer players to attempt to quantify the number of head and body hits that they take during a game. So if you have a sports team, for example, a youth sports team that can't afford wearable technology like head sensors, for example, what else can be done to attempt to quantify 
the number of head injuries or body blows that they might take, which would cause their brain to move back and forth within their skull, can we develop an observation document that could be used by an assistant coach or a team manager? So we just finished our data collection on that and are working to analyze that. But with our last iteration of that particular observation document, I feel really good about where we are with that. So we have that going on and we'll continue to use that document in other spaces outside of youth female soccer. But we also are working with um, women's roller derby. And so we continue to work with them um, on concussion reporting. We continue to work with them in two very specific ways. The first is um, through MRI. So the female roller derby players come in and they have three MRI series with us each year. And we are collecting a scan sequence that includes resting state, structural state, and DTI and are now beginning to recruit control subjects to compare to the roller derby data. But we're also this summer starting to put head sensors in the helmets of the roller derby players so that we can um, see if we can begin to triangulate some data and to see if we can see changes in their different scans when compared to um, um, head sensor data that basically measures like the impact of a hit, where the hit took place on the head, for example. And so we've got a lot going on with roller derby, and we do continue to to follow up with neuromotor or neurocognitive testing with them. We are also, we're developing another project and another partnership with women's ice hockey in the U.S. And so, again, probably the use of head sensors, some more objective measures there, uh, but we will continue to use some of the more subjective tests like the neurocog and neuromotor tests. So we're starting to basically um, do the same things with women's ice hockey that we've been doing with women's roller derby. And of course, we continue our work with women's football. And just with them, it's head sensors in the helmet as well. And also just continuing their neuromotor and neurocog testing. Um, so we are working with a bunch of different populations. And one exciting upcoming research project that we have is we just entered into uh, an exclusive partnership with the girls athletic leadership schools. So these schools were founded by Liz Wolfson and her team. They are middle school and high schools in Denver, Colorado, Los Angeles, California. And I believe they're opening up another set of middle schools and high schools. And I think it's going to be in Idaho. I could be wrong about that last location, but I think that that's what they told me the last time I met with them in February. And so with the girls athletic leadership schools, their entire curriculum is built around human movement. So in middle school and in high school, they learn science through human movement. They start every day with approximately a one hour like movement session, whether it's yoga or aerobic activity or weightlifting, but these girls are physically active all day long. And so we actually are gearing up to start a longitudinal tracking study of those girls that focuses on head injuries, subconcussive trauma, and their endocrine function basically. So my area that I am particularly interested in is neuroendocrine function and dysfunction amongst athletes who are at risk 
four head injuries. And so I am particularly interested in looking at how phases of the menstrual cycle um, could potentially influence sort of the magnitude of the injury, the recovery, and the rehabilitation of it. So I'm interested in looking at the HPA access and just how sport participation might influence that. So we know a lot about energy deficiency, right, in female athletes with the red syndrome and then the female athlete triad. Um, And so I am interested in looking at how those two conditions, I guess you could say, also might influence physical activity, head injury, and endocrine function and dysfunction. And in terms of your advice for maybe a new researcher, if they Mm -hmm. were wanting to come into this area and they were specifically wanting to focus on concussion in the female athlete, what advice would you give them on what area is really needed to be developed? Well, um, I have a bit of a bias because I um, think that there's so little work done that's or so little that's been done that focuses on endocrinology and female athletes and head injuries, especially amongst girls who are just starting their periods or are having irregular periods because their body hasn't quite figured out how to navigate energy availability with physical activity levels and eating and all of those types of things. But one of the things that I would say is if women are interested in going down this road with with females and female athletes in concussions, it's such a big area. I mean, it truly is a huge area of scholarly study. So my first piece of advice is take time to be overwhelmed by how vast this area is. The other thing that I would say is don't be discouraged if someone tells you that female athletes do not need their own guidelines. Don't be discouraged if someone tells you that female athletes' concussions are not different than men's. I just had a conversation with two women um, at a recent conference who were PTs coming from one of the children's hospitals in the United States. And the person, the, the head ortho person who had to sign off on their, you know, approval to come to this particular conference said, you know, why, why do you need to go to this? Men and women, their concussive experiences are exactly the same. So in 2019, you have a person at a leading children's hospital in the United States basically telling his staff, you don't even, well, this is ridiculous. You don't need to know this. Why? I mean, it's all the same. And so there's still some, you know, it's still a prevailing, prevailing thought out there that women don't need their own guidelines, that women don't get hurt like men do, that women don't experience the magnitude of a head injury that men will you know, because women are weaker and they're, you know, they're less aggressive and that's just not true. And so you're, you're going to bump up against some of these stereotypes. Um, and you're going to, some of it can be really intimidating, but don't be discouraged by that. You're on the right track. You're asking the right questions, take the time to be overwhelmed and figure out what aspect of female health you really want to focus on while you're doing this work.
So as well as potentially being overwhelmed by the amount of activity and maybe the negative stereotypes that exist, is it also a case of it's really difficult to collect these kinds of data? Because, for instance, if you're looking at injury incidents, you have a lot of individuals. And if you then, on top of that, trying to align that with some changes across the menstrual cycle, for instance, yeah. That's a lot of data that you're going to have to be able to collect. How yeah. is it even doable? Well, I, um, I, uh, well, first I will say I agree with you that it is, it's a lot of data. We're, we still have data that we're looking at from four years ago because we collect a lot of data. And you're right. But one of the things that I do try to do is get as many you know, students and graduate students and other colleagues involved in the work and in the data that we have. So I can say to them, oh, you need to write a dissertation and you're interested in this. We have this data. Do you want to use it? And so I try to do that as often and as much as I can. Um, but yes, you're right. I do. I will say that I feel very fortunate to be able to do this work and I, I honestly think that one of the reasons why I was able to get in with these te different teams is because I have spent my life in the female athlete space. I was an athlete. I was a field hockey player. I was a coach for 24 years. I have spent my entire life in female athletics and have really tried to do everything I can to support it and to be supportive to join organizations and make professional networking happen. Um, so I can pick up the phone and say, look, you know, we've got, this is what I think, but I need to be able to prove it. Can I come out and do this? So I, I would say that networking and who you know, they've really got to trust you before you can even get in the door. And so I, I think that that is one thing to just kind of think about those things. So in the year before, I thought that I might start this work. I started vol doing volunteer work with the two football teams that I was going to, that I knew I was going to approach the, the next year to do research with them. And it can take some time to build those relationships, but you know, you just you kind of got to do it. And other people might have their own strategies about how to build those relationships and how to build trust. But I didn't want them to think that I was just showing up to take what I need and then I was going to exit. My research is field-based research. So with the exception of the MRIs that we run, we collect all of our data in the field. So we go to the football practices. We go to the roller derby skates. We show up at the ice arena. We go to the soccer fields. So we are out there with them. You know, with the soccer girls, they, I'm trying to remember, it was either soccer or basketball several years ago when I had finished doing some data collection with them. It wasn't around concussion, but it was around something else. They asked me to be the honorary captain of their team for their last game. And I was like, oh my gosh, I absolutely will do that. So I try to, you know, develop these relationships. And I think people are amazed at, or will be amazed at how small this world really is. And so, you do the right thing and you got to care about it, right? I mean, I've not only spent my life in 
the female athlete space as an athlete and as a coach, but also as an advocate. And I have been uh, an advocate for women's health in general, right? For a very long time. I mean, I, I work in a center for women's health and wellness. And so I have a joint appointment at UNCG. So you got to make the inroads. You got to be willing to do the work. You got to be willing to show up at soccer practice at eight o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. And so that's just my approach to this work and what has really worked best for me. Other people might have their own ways of, you know, getting after some of this stuff. And I think whatever way you can do it, that's what will work for you. But really, truly be committed to improving women's health and better understanding what women need so that they can continue to be physically active throughout their entire life. And if something does happen, there are mechanisms and there are guidelines in place that are exclusive to women that might shorten a recovery phase or might improve a rehabilitation phase. When it comes to this work, it's in its infancy. And just finally then, um, in terms of professional networks and relationships and also about being an advocate for women's health, what is your key message that you would like to tell the world? Oh, around women's health about your specific area on concussion that take women seriously listen to them they women are in tune with their bodies if something's not right it's not right you know make sure that we're not dismissing or blaming um and that we're actually listening and we are doing everything we can in every way to make sure that sport, physical activity, whether it's professional, amateur, recreational, whatever it is, is safe for women so that they can fulfill their desire to be physically active for their entire life. Well, thanks very much, Donna. That's given me some great insights into your research, but also about general philosophy on women's health and the importance of women's issues relative to the female athlete. So thank you ever so much for doing this podcast with me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. And um, if, if anybody has any questions or wants to follow up further, they can just get in touch with me. That's excellent. And I'll put all the links and the contact details with the show notes when I put the podcast out. Thanks, Jackie.